Do keep your Bibles open here at Isaiah. Uh, as Carol said, this is the introduction to 53. If the chapters were put in the right place, this would be 53, just to let you know that. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah. If you're new to 10th, you can see that we're now in the home straight. We've come this morning to the beginning of what is arguably the most significant poem ever written by Isaiah the prophet, and uh, I suppose by anybody, it's certainly been one of the most prevailingly significant poems in the history of the Christian church. The German scholar Franz Derich said that our text this morning is the most central, the deepest, and loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecies, outstripping themselves, has ever achieved. Its fundamental significance is grasped even by those who perhaps are not so interested in the Christian message. Uh, This particular chapter, for example, is missing from the liturgy of the synagogue and is not read typically in the synagogue today. Though most rabbinical literature going way back into the period before the coming of Christ The vast majority of rabbinical literature uh, believes this passage to be uh, messianic, that is, foretelling uh, the Messiah. One great Jewish rabbi uh, of the 16th century said that in Israel there were two traditions regarding the Messiah. There was the tradition of a suffering Messiah and the tradition of a victorious Messiah. In the Aramaic Targum, the translation of verse 13 goes like this, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, shall act wisely. Uh, The Targum, one of the fundamental uh, Jewish documents. And most of the rabbis, as I say, take that position. It isn't until the 11th century, in the 11th and 12th, that the big three rabbis, uh, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and Radak, uh, take the servant here, not as the Messiah, but as the nation of Israel itself. And that would be the prevailing view to this day within Judaism. We take the, we take the view as uh, Christians, as you will see, that this passage refers to Christ. In fact, it's part of the larger scenario that has been being painted by the prophet Isaiah in which he roots the promises to Israel, the promises to Judah and Jerusalem. He roots these promises in the purposes of God. And over the period of his public ministry and towards the end of his life in his private ministry, Isaiah the prophet has regularly put before us what God predicts and ordains for the future, particularly for the future of his people, Israel. It was Pascal who wrote that prophecies are the greatest proof of Jesus Christ. And it is remarkable that in Isaiah's book, about 700 years before Christ comes, not only do we have the Messiah's background and identity described to a great degree in the early part of the book, 
as being descended from David, as being the son of David who would inherit the throne of David, who would be born of a virgin and would have divine honors given to him. But here in this latter part of the book, we have this enormous surprise that is brought to us. Beginning in chapter 40, we're told that this one who's coming to have divine honors and to rule is in fact God himself. God himself is going to come and visit his people. There have been hints of it earlier. Emmanuel, God with us. But in chapter 40, uh, the, the curtain is taken away, the one we are to expect. The Messiah, when he comes, when he comes, the Lord will come himself to Jerusalem and to his people. And so having had that all to deal with in our minds, we now come towards the end of the book to this most shocking and surprising of insights, that when the Lord comes, he will come in the form of a servant. He will come as the servant of the Lord. And he will come to achieve one great work that has already been described in chapter 50 and 51 and the beginning of 52, this great work of salvation. There we're told that he, when he comes, will bring about a new Eden, a return to paradise with the curse of sin and death removed in a renewed universe. And he will bring about this new Eden by a new exodus. That is a a work of rescue, a work of salvation, similar to the work that Moses did. You remember uh, when under God's hand, The children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and their bondage there and were brought through the Red Sea and delivered safely ultimately to the promised land. Only this new exodus will deal with a more fundamental problem. Isaiah has taken time in the first part of his book to look at Israel and Judah and the nations. He has examined and critiqued each one of them. In the early chapters of Isaiah, he brings Israel, Judah, and the nations under the spotlight of the work of word of God and comes to the conclusion that Israel, Judah, and the Gentile nations are all alike in a state of rebellion against God, are all alike under the wrath of God. This will be most closely demonstrated, clearly demonstrated in the story of Judah itself. Judah, which is the royal line, the appointed line from which the Messiah will come, will itself become a monument to the nations of what it is to be a people in rebellion against God and what it means for such a people in terms of the judgment of God. Going into exile, Jerusalem and Judah being demolished and destroyed and the people taken into exile, an exile in which they are effectively still today with a vast majority of Jews scattered around the world and possessing only a small part of what was the original inheritance promised to them by God, under the judgment of God. But not only Israel, not only Judah, but the Gentile nations represented by the leading nations of the period are brought under the spotlight and all alike, all alike, are considered unrighteous and ungodly and under the judgment of of God. And so when this Messiah comes, he comes not to deal with some foreign power, he comes to deal with the power of sin. So in chapter 51, my righteousness draws near, my salvation is gone out 
the coastlands. Hebrew expression for the furthest, remotest places you can possibly ever imagine there being. The coastlands, he says, are waiting and hoping for me, and for my arm they wait. And then in chapter 52, the good news. There are those who are going to come. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, who publish peace, who bring news of happiness, who publish salvation, and who say to Zion, your God reigns. And when that day comes, the Lord comforts his people. Chapter 52, verse 9. He redeems Jerusalem. He bears his holy arm, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's where we've got to in our study of this book. We're on tiptoes. God is going to do a great thing. How is he going to do this great thing? He's announced in chapter 49 how he will do it. He will do it through an individual. He will not do it through Israel the nation. He will do it through an individual who is named in chapter 49. Your name shall be called Israel and you will save Israel. And you will save the Gentiles. This individual assumes the role of servant Israel, who was charged by God with obedience to God, but who failed in their charge, just as Adam failed in his, and disobeyed God and brought judgment on the world. But this one, this one comes with the pleasure of God. This one comes with the delight of God. This one comes to do the will of God. He comes in the spirit of God. He comes in righteousness. Whereas everyone else is unrighteous, he is righteous. That's the expectation that has been built up as we've gotten to this point in the passage. And here the focus, the focus is on the servant. Behold, my servant First time we heard about this, we heard uh, him saying some things about this servant back in chapter 52. Behold my servant, he shall be high, lifted up, and exalted. I will divide him a portion with the many at the end of this song, chapter 53, 12. And he will divide the spoil with the strong. He will be a victorious servant. And what... Isaiah is doing here is this. He is bringing before our eyes this one who will bring about this amazing salvation for both Israel and the nations. Now, in the New Testament, this chapter is used again and again and again, referred to over and over again to describe the mystery of the Messiah's coming. The mystery of the Messiah's coming was that when he came, he came not immediately to trounce the Romans and establish a greater Judea. He came to suffer and to die. And it's Isaiah 52, 53 that introduces us to that particular aspect. So let's look at it together this morning. First of all, it begins with the servant's ultimate glory. It's a good place to start at the beginning of the year. We're listening here to the voice of the Lord God himself. No one else is speaking. It's not the prophet. The prophet is in the persona of God himself, speaking the script the Spirit of God has given to him and speaking the words that the Lord God himself says. Behold, my servant. At the beginning of a year, it's good to hear the voice of God very clearly speak and for him to be saying to his church, 
around the world. Here's what I want you to behold. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to grasp. Behold my servant. He wants you to see the Messiah. He wants you to see Jesus. He wants Jesus to be in your view this morning. Of course, these words were originally spoken to the prophet Isaiah himself. He's having a vision. In that vision, the Lord God says to Isaiah, See the servant. And he uses language about the servant that reminds Isaiah that he has seen the servant before. In chapter 6, he'd gone into the temple in the year King Uzziah died when it seemed as if the entire kingdom and the structure of authority and government were collapsing all around him. He goes into the temple, and there he sees a vision of the God of Israel himself. I saw the Lord high, lifted up, exalted, filling the temple. And here the Lord God comes to this prophet again and says, I'm going to give you a vision of that Lord God you saw in chapter 6. The same one, behold my servant. What a shock that was for Isaiah to see the same Lord God and to hear the same language now from the Lord God himself using the same language of the servant that now stands before him in his vision. Now in the structure of Isaiah, we have heard this word behold before. Back in chapter 42 verse 1, the Lord says, when he's introducing the servant for the very first time. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. And then the Lord God addresses the servant. He says to the servant, I am the Lord. I called you in righteousness. I will give you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another except you, of course. Those are the words of the Lord back in 42 verse 1. Those words are repeated almost word for word when Jesus is taken down. You remember he goes down to the river to be baptized by John the Baptist. And the Father speaks from heaven, behold, here is my beloved Son, behold him. With whom I am well pleased. It's the same form of the Greek. In whom my soul delights. Referring us back to that first, that first prophecy of the servant. He is not only God's king and son, but he is the servant of the Lord. That first introductory comment by the Father at the baptism of Jesus links together all of the teaching of Isaiah in that one sentence. Behold my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And here he links it again with this son. Behold, I want you to see him. You see, in the father's eyes, there is no one more wonderful than his son. In the father's eyes, there is no one for, to whom he wants you to look with such adoration and love and worship and service than to his son. 
It is through him that Eden will be restored. It is through him that the greater exodus, a greater and more lasting salvation, will be accomplished. The servant is an individual here. He is the individual spoken about in chapter 49, the Israel who would save Israel. He is coming under the Lord's eyes and with the Lord's pleasure. Throughout this book, we've heard again and again, the Lord is not pleased with Israel, but he is pleased with this Israel. The Lord does not look with love and affection on his earthly people because they're in rebellion. Instead, he's moving in wrath against them, but he has no wrath for this servant. This is the righteous servant. This servant pleases him, delights him. God is delighted and pleased with his servant, the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He's informed by the wisdom of God. He is prudent like God is. In the work of salvation, he is not doing this, as it were, uh, just kind of uh, ad hoc, but rather according to the plan and purposes of God as they have been put together and formed from before the creation of the world. When he's finished the work, people will look at what he has accomplished and they will say, he has done all things well. He comes to act wisely. He will be successful. He will prosper in all that he does. My servant shall act wisely. And so as we're reminded about his status, he goes on to say, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. No clearer language could be selected by the prophet to describe the nature and the splendor of the person. For these phrases, these three verbs, to be high, to be lifted up, and to be exalted, wherever they are used in the book of Isaiah, are used to describe the dignity of God himself. Whether it's the throne of God in chapter 6, verse 1, The throne of God that he saw, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Or in chapter 3 where God says, now I will arise, now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. Or in chapter 57, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. Only the God of Israel is high and lifted up and exalted. Everything and everyone else is low and brought low because of their pride and their arrogance. Over and over again, beginning in chapter 2, for example, where God is speaking to his people Israel, he says this, the land is filled with idols and each one will be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So when we read these words, we know that this is not Israel. This is not the nation. This is not the prophet. Even Isaiah himself has walked into the temple back in chapter 6. And there, along with his nation, the prophet of God, who is known as the servant of God, the prophet sees his own unworthiness and sin. He says, I'm undone, I'm unclean. 
Because in the presence of God, everybody, everybody is unclean. All of us are unclean. That's our fundamental human problem. But here, God says to the prophet, you remember the high and exalted one. Here he is. Here is my servant. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. And the Lord Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 in John chapter 12. And the apostle John comments there, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Both in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he went into the temple and here in this vision that God the Father gives to him of the work of God the Son, Isaiah saw his glory. And Jesus uses this glory language. Jesus uses this exalted language to say that the remarkable thing about his, his humiliation is this. That part of the exaltation to glory where God is, is going to come through his being lifted up. Not simply lifted up the way God is lifted up above all things, transcending all things. But Jesus himself will be lifted up onto the cross. And that that in itself will be a demonstration of the glory, the glory of God's judgment, the glory of God's wrath, the glory of God's mercy, the glory of God's love, the glory of God's Son acting as a substitute and sin bearer for sinners like you and me. There's no getting away from it. That with this poem, we are being taken into the very secret places of the Godhead itself. This is the language the Apostle Paul uses when he calls Jesus your holy servant. When he says that the Lord Jesus is now highly exalted and has the name that is above every name. Here is the servant's ultimate glory. And as Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, is given this vision of God and is given to speak in the part of the Father, particularly at this moment, the words of God, in the drama of redemption, that is in the eternal realm, in the drama of redemption, the time of this particular conversation is set over 700 years in the future, Isaiah is given to hear, if you like, a human insight into the kind of thing that the, that the Lord God wants to say about his son after the events of the cross, after the resurrection. Behold, my servant will act wisely and will prosper. Here's the second thing. The ultimate glory... But here we have the wretched humiliation of the servant. There is an abrupt change of tone in verse 14. There is also an abrupt change of addressee in verse 14. Did you notice it when we were reading it? It doesn't read well in English. Actually, in Hebrew, it's far easier. Uh, there's a sudden grammatical switch which is more, not as awkward in Hebrew as it is in English. But the switch is there. 
And I want you to see this because it gives you an insight into the heart of God. He is now addressing whom? Do you notice in verse 14? He's talked about the exaltation of his son. He's been showing his son, the servant, to Isaiah, the prophet, and through him to us. He's been saying, I want you to look at him, my servant, my obedient, righteous, perfect servant. He's accomplished all that I've given him to do. He's acted wisely. He's worked according to the plan. And now he's going to be exalted and made very high, lifted up. Father looks at his son. And he says, look, look what they've done to you. As many as were astonished at you. There is a momentary, do you see? There is a momentary break, if, if we can put it in human terms. There is a momentary break in the divine concentration. He's introducing his son to the prophet. But he can't take his eyes off the son, as many as were astonished at you. Look at you, son. And there's a pause. We've been given an insight, you see, using anthropomorphic human language into the, into the emotion, into the feeling, into the heart of the love of God for his son. And he tells us why he has paused and looked. He goes on to explain now to us. He goes on to describe the sufferings of his son. Now, th now, this is not entirely unexpected. In the earlier servant songs, we've listened to the servant himself talk about his sufferings. In chapter 40, 49, for example, he says this, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. He's then described by someone else as one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, that is by Israel, the servant of rulers. And we think of Herod and Pontius Pilate and Jesus in chains before them. And then in chapter 50 in verse 6, he's giving his report. The servant is giving his report after the cross. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. So we've come across these very pieces of script earlier. This is what's going to happen to the servant. But now we hear the father's description. It's worse than we thought. No matter how humble the nation of Israel was by its decimation and exile, the servant is going to experience something worse. There's something totally unique in the sorrows and sufferings he will endure. The father looks at his son, at you. And then he looks to us and says about him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
Here's the Father, creator of all things. What has he done? He has made a human being, a human being made in his image. He knows what a human being is meant to be like because he planned what we were to be like. He had the original plans of what a human person should be like. What he's saying is, son, you don't look like the image bearer you were meant to look like. That's what he's saying to us here. Listen to the father describing this. The Lord's servant will suffer horribly. His face will be smashed and beaten almost beyond human recognition. So disfigured that you could hardly recognize his features. He will be hardly, he will hardly look human. Beaten. Blooded. His face virtually pulp at the hands of those who are assaulting him. People are appalled. Astonished is the word God uses. Many were astonished, speechless, couldn't believe a human being could look the way you look. This is what's on the mind of God. He will hardly look human after people are finished with him. Now, do you see how Isaiah is being given here? An insight into the sufferings as well as the glories of the Messiah. What he was to endure at the physical level, he will go on to describe what he endures at a very different level for our salvation. But here he is pausing on the human, very human suffering. Now, there's a sense of which, of course, I need to remind you that we're using anthropomorphic, using human language. That's how God has revealed himself to us. We mustn't think think that God the Father and God the Son have conversations the way you and I do, because they will one will, they have one mind, they are one essence, one substance, three persons. They're not like us, but they have to communicate with us because they know what we're like. So we're given an insight here into the relationship of the Father and the Son. What a terrible picture it is that God the Father paints. Appearance marred. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. We used to sing an old hymn, All ye that pass by to Jesus, draw nigh to you. Is it nothing that Jesus should die? Your ransom and peace, your surety he is. Come see if there ever was sorrow like his. But there's a third thing to this introduction, to this prologue, to this overture before the main event. The servant's priestly work. We, we need to see the balance of the passage here in the Hebrew poetry. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle. As many, so shall he sprinkle many nations. In other words, the way that it's framed is that his ability to do something for the nations is dependent on his appearance being marred 
and his being left without human semblance, all of that agony. There's a connection. There's a a kind of poetic connection of the framework of the movement. As many were astonished at you, so you will sprinkle many nations. Because he did this, he can do that. And his victory, you see, is described in terms of sprinkling. There is in the footnote, by the way, the word startle. It it makes no sense, and therefore most of the translators have stayed with sprinkle. The the, the original, uh, the best manuscripts that we have, have this word nazar, which always describes the work of a priest. It's a technical Old Testament term for performing a purification rite. The priest would sacrifice the animal. He would take the blood and sprinkle the blood on the altar as a sign that the sacrifice, the innocent victim had died, and the guilty people were now forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice. Sometimes the priest would take water and would sprinkle the water over the people as a symbol that what the sacrifice had done was not only take away the barrier between us and God, but it actually washed us, cleansed us, and made us fit for the presence of God. That's precisely what's going on here. The sprinkling of blood, in every case, has to do with ransom from guilt and cleansing with a view to consecration, that is, making us fit to be in the presence of God on the basis of a satisfactory sacrifice. The rest of Isaiah 53 will develop that idea. But Jesus is referring to this idea when he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that is to be the servant of the Lord, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many. So the servant's work is revealed here. As his blood is shed, he will atone for and cleanse and sprinkle many nations. When we sprinkle water on someone in baptism, we are representing the effect of the sprinkling of the blood in the innermost sanctuary in heaven. It's a symbol of the cleansing work of Christ in the life of the believer. And this is precisely the way in which it's used, of course, in the New Testament. When a person trusts in the Lord Jesus, we that person has confidence to enter into the very holiest place of all by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because they've been sprinkled clean, Hebrews tells us, from an evil conscience. When Jesus dies in our place, he dies as our mediator, the in-between person, who reconciles us, the mediator of a new covenant, who reconciles us to God and the sprinkled blood that he offered on our behalf. And you notice the effect of this great work of cleansing This great work of cleansing was described by Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he's writing to those elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. So ceremonially, in in our minds, by faith, we realize that what Christ has done for us has had that same effect of making us clean and acceptable in the presence of God, able to come into the very presence of God. What happens here is this, that 
As Jesus does this work, people, kings, the most influential people that people could think of in those days, kings, people with power and wealth, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Even those kind of people will recognize that what the servant has done by his death, by his agonies, by his sufferings, what the servant has done has actually brought about the very salvation that we need. It's made it possible for us to know God, to come near to God, given us confidence to come to God by what he has accomplished. They will shut their mouths because of him. This is good news. It's good news for the whole world. It's not restricted. This business that he is about is not restricted to any class, race, tribe, or social circle. It's good news. Good news about the end of religion, the end of the past, and the beginning of something new and wonderful, something that shuts us up and thrills our hearts with wonder, love, and praise. And it ends by pushing the boundaries of time. As men and women, these leaders even of, of the, the nations of the world are, are led to see that which they hadn't been told. And see that which they have not heard and then become to understand it. What's going on today? Men and women across the world are coming to understand this message about Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, as we saw earlier, are coming to understand and embrace this Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. Maybe you, for the first time today, are going to come and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. Maybe you're going to take this chapter 53 of Isaiah and give it to your Jewish friend and say, would you read this in Hebrew? Read it and give me your feedback. Let's have a little reading group for a moment. You go read Isaiah 53. Come back and we'll talk about who do you think this is describing? And maybe God in his grace would grant repentance and life unto Israel. that They might come to recognize their Messiah, Yeshua. But above that, we pray that God would break down the hard hearts of men and women who are in rebellion against him. And that they would come to see what they hadn't seen before. And understand what they would not heard before. As the grace of God melts them. Then above all, there's coming a day when this exalted, high, and lifted up Jesus will be seen. And in that day, the great and influential figures of the world will in the end acknowledge him, either gladly because they trust him themselves, or in terror because they've rejected him. God says to us on this first Sunday of the new year, what he said to Isaiah so long ago, behold, my servant, look to him. Look to him and be saved. Look to him and trust him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our minds to grasp, and our wills to embrace the loveliness of your Son. the sheer shock and horror of what men did to him is echoed in the text we've read together. 
but the wonder and the joy and the love and the pleasure that you, Father, take in your Son is also in the text. And we are among those, many of us in this room are among those whose hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. We pray that you would enable us to live as those who know him and to gladly serve him as our Lord. In his strong name we pray. Amen.